Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book, The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part four and we're starting chapter eight. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can become part of the crew and help support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter eight, an experimental passage. My crew had to go home from Ramsey by steamer and train, for the weather gave us no chance of getting further south during the few remaining days of his holiday. The day after he had left, I thought the weather was good enough to let me make my next passage, which I meant to be to Beaumaris in the Menai Strait. From ten in the morning to six in the evening, I struggled to make headway against a rising headwind, and then I turned back to Ramsey. Before entering the harbour, I hove to so as to get anchor and warps ready for immediate use. At this moment, a squall struck the boat and compelled me to lower the mainsail. In doing this, the parrel line broke and the gaff blew free. It was only after a struggle that the sail came down, and in the process, the peak halyard unrove through the lower block. Seeing it was now impossible to hoist the mainsail, I was in something of a hurry to get out my warps, clear the anchor, stow the mainsail, and steer for the harbour entrance under foresail and jib. An interested and perhaps sympathetic crowd stood on the pierhead, enjoying the sights. I came into the harbour easily enough, and I was at once anxious to lower the headsails. I went forward and let go the foresail, for that could be down in two seconds. It would have taken several minutes to bring the other sail aboard. By the time I was back at the tiller, the eddying gusts over the pier wall blew her head out, and it seemed for one moment that I should have to sail out of the harbour again far enough away to clear things, reeve the halyard and hoist my mainsail. The thought of having to do all this work made me very angry. I put the tiller hard up. The boat swung right round, approached the pier near enough for me to throw a line to it. Somebody caught it, and I was soon towed round the corner, snug stowed among the other craft waiting for finer weather. Then I felt much happier. As I passed a fishing boat, the skipper dropped a basket of fish on my deck, and so provided me with a welcome meal. It rained hard all that night. This made the cabin all the cosier by contrast. Next day, I put all things in order and made ready to go out again. The Joan was this day the most popular show in the town, but although everybody admired the boat for what she had done, they did not extend their admiration to her skipper. Nearly all who knew anything of the sea thought I had behaved foolishly, and they said so. I soon grew tired of arguing with them about the benefits of a weather shore and why I had gone away from Ramsey. They were all brought up in the place and knew the weather and the harbour and the coast like a book. Only one person, and he was a gentleman, recognised that I had acted sensibly according to the information at my disposal. On Friday, August the 10th, I went out at 11am in the morning with the wind fair and just as strong as I would have chosen for myself. Even then... Someone on the quayside told me dolefully that I was going out at the wrong time. I haven't a notion what he really meant. It was a happy sail to the strait. Everything right, wind, sea, sun, boat and myself. Even the absence of a dinghy added to the pleasure of that day's sail. It was something less to worry about and something less to drag along. I hove to at about 2am because I did not intend to enter the strait before daylight. At 8am I dropped anchor off Beaumaris. As soon as I was at anchor, I discovered what a trouble it was to be without a dinghy. 
It was a long time before I could get anybody to put me ashore, and it was even more bother to get myself put aboard again. When I was aboard, I longed to be ashore, and when I was ashore, I very soon wanted to be aboard again. I'd better get back home as soon as I can, I thought. Nobody loves me without a dinghy. Damn dinghies, they're an absolute nuisance when you've got them. I considered sailing home without calling anywhere in between, but this seemed a tall order. I compromised and determined to try what a really long passage single-handed would be like. From Beaumaris to Falmouth was nearly 300 miles and would provide me with several days sailing and be a jolly fine experiment. So I shipped enough water and food to last a week and on Sunday, August the 12th, at noon, I weighed anchor and sailed out of the strait by the way I'd come in. I had inquired at Beaumaris whether it was feasible for me to go the other way and go straight out into Carnarvon Bay. This would have saved a good many miles, but everybody I spoke to about it described in fearful language the dangers of the passage and advised me to go out by Puffin Island and round Anglesey. One man even said it would be far better if I went to London by the way I'd come, but I wouldn't consider that and of course I'd got no chart of the strait or any reliable information about it, so I gave up the idea. Now, the chief difficulty attached to single-handed sailing is that of getting sleep. For one or even two nights, a man might struggle along without sleep, though for my part, I don't like it. It is an exhausting game. I meant to get my necessary amount of sleep, though I was doubtful about getting it in regular periods. I thought it would probably pay me to sleep during the day when this was possible. If I hove to on the starboard tack, nobody would run me down, and I should have right away over every other vessel. Still, you can't do this for any length of time unless you're far enough from land to get through with your sleep and wake up before you run ashore. I knew, of course, I must be guided by circumstances, and I was going on this long passage largely to find out how circumstances would guide me. After going out through the eastern end of the strait, I set a course for the first stretch of the journey past the Isle of Anglesey. The wind was light and progress was slow, so slow, that when the tide turned, the boat began to drift back. It is a wearisome and annoying phase of sailing to point where you wish to go while you steadily retire from it. The best thing to do, then, is to anchor where you are until the tide turns once more in your favour or the wind grows strong enough to drive you over the opposing tide. There is, however, some trouble involved in letting go the anchor, especially in deep water. There is often more trouble in getting it up again, you cannot turn in for sleep unless you stow the sails and anchor in a regular manner, for which purpose you must pick out a safe anchorage, a place not always to be found. As soon as you are held by an anchor, the wind may freshen or change and so make it possible for you to go on. Having hauled up your anchor and started once more, the wind may quite likely die away and leave you to anchor a second time. It will be seen that it is often easier and more profitable to drift back a mile or two waiting for the wind rather than to bring up. On this evening, a steady breeze came up after I had drifted back a mile, so that by nightfall I had reached Linus Point, 16 miles from Beaumaris. Here I put up running lights, looking out the new course and determined to get away more to the north while the good wind lasted, in order to have room enough to clear the skerries. Between the skerries and the island the channel is narrow and encumbered and spring tides run strong. The passage is one to be avoided by a stranger and by a sailing vessel, especially if the wind is not fair or sufficient. At night, 
it is with stronger reason to be avoided. I watched anxiously for the South Stack Light, seven miles south of the Skerries. By the relative position of these two, I could tell whether I was far out enough to be safe from the Skerries. The wind continued to increase. It would be a headwind when once I was free to turn south. Soon after I had concluded it would be safe to go south, the rain came down in torrents and the wind blew harder than ever. At 2am on Monday, I thought it advisable to lie to under shortened sail. You may imagine the operation on a small boat in a seaway when you can only handle the ropes by knowing exactly where each one ought to be. Taking in the jib was one of the nastiest jobs I had tackled. It was a heavy sail I had bought in Ramsey a few days before from a fisherman. It was stiff as a board with the wet and the foredeck of the Joan is not a steady platform at the best of times. Everything being stowed securely, I lit the cabin lamp and turned in for my first sleep. Now the boat was hove to on the port tack and she pointed northwest. I dared not put her on the starboard tack for fear she should go down onto the skerries, and I was worried a bit too, thinking I was more or less in the line of steamer traffic. An idea even came into my head that I might run plump against the Irish coast during the night, but I quickly dismissed it. That idea did not worry me. I knew too that the wind might change, but as I could do nothing to stop it, I gave up bothering about it and went off to sleep at 3am. So far as I remember, I slept very well till daybreak, when I found the wind still hard, but moderating. A dense mist made me stay where I was, though where I was I did not know. So I cooked a breakfast and slept again till 10 o'clock when the mist had lifted and I was able to set off again. Three hours later, I found myself five miles northwest of the Skerries and heading for the South Stack Light. I passed close by it. There was a bad sea there due to the tide rip and overfalls. The day became fine, the breeze light, and by 7pm I had only reached the neighbourhood of Carnarvon Bay light vessel, 34 miles further on my journey. I passed the light vessel well inside and until morning I drifted. At 11pm I was one mile northwest of the light vessel. During this night, I was able to get a long, refreshing sleep. On Tuesday, the sailing was better. A breeze enabled me to reach the middle of Cardigan Bay before nightfall, another 42 miles on. Also, I got in a couple of hours sleep in the afternoon when the wind died away. This evening, a steamer, the Greek Fisher, passed me. The Joan and her solitary skipper were examined with curiosity. The captain hailed me through a megaphone. Where are you bound? Land's End! After a short pause came the ironic inquiry. Would you happen to know where it is? No reply was given, and the steamer went on. At 11pm I slept once more. There was very little wind, and what there was was fair, so I lowered all sails except the jib. I awoke at 3am to find a good fair breeze blowing and the boat pointing east-northeast. This wind was not to be wasted in sleep. It lasted for 40 hours and drove the boat as far as Land's End, a distance of 148 miles, before it died away on Thursday evening. I passed Strumble Head at daybreak. The bishops and clerks went by and I could then point the smalls, but the small tide overpowered my efforts to pass outside, and on looking at the sailing directions I found that, although a long line of rocks extends all the way from the coast to the smalls, there were several passages inside. I sailed over the hats at 4.15pm, according to my clock. I could then lay a course for Land's End, south-southwest. Wednesday night was passed somewhere in the Bristol Channel, running in a direct line from the Smalls to Land's End. 
I hove to for two hours at midnight for sleep, thus wasting a little of the good wind. I wished afterwards that I had kept sailing. Steering by night was a worry. My compass was an old-fashioned dry thing with no lamp, so that it could not be seen at night. Steering by the stars is the next best thing, but this is only a rough guide. This night, the stars were plain enough, and a convenient one could be picked out, but the course pursued in trying to keep a tossing, swaying shroud between a certain star and your eye cannot be anything but serpentine. During the night, a little fish jumped aboard. I was startled but got hold of it before it could jump back again and tossed it into the well. When daylight came, I had a great mind to fry it, but as I knew nothing about that kind, I threw it away. It inducted me, however, to trail a spinner, and I caught two mackerel which were promptly fried for dinner. Land was sighted at noon on Thursday. It seemed at first to be an island, and two alarming thoughts crossed my mind. Had I gone so far west of my course as to get to the Scilly Isles, or so far east as to make Lundy Island? It turned out to be the southern extremity of St Ives Bay. It was dark when I tried to round Land's End. The wind was now light, and the tide, which I had calculated to be in my favour, was plainly against me as I approached the longship's lighthouse. The silent, oily swirl of the tideway here, and the manner in which it appeared to be setting me towards the rocks, scared me, and I swung round on the other tack, gave up the idea of turning the corner that night, hove to on the port tack, and turned in to sleep. When I awoke on Friday morning, a heavy wind was blowing and a bad sea rapidly rising. Both were severe enough to make reefing down the proper thing to do, but experience had taught me that in the Joan you must not reef if you wish to make headway against the wind. The boat had had her testing, and I was prepared to trust her. At least two hours were occupied in weathering this corner of the land. I thought that at one time I was in for another gale, and half a mind to turn around for St Ives, but as I knew that once round the point the wind would be a fair one for Falmouth and St Moors, I kept on. When at last I drew clear and had gained an offing, I hove to and reefed right down. First the jib had to be stowed, then the mainsail had two reefs taken in. With a small spread of canvas running, the twenty miles to the lizard was a revelation to me. The wind had by this time brought along some very fine specimens of Atlantic rollers, real monsters they were to my thinking. The boat liked them, enjoyed them, and asked them to come on and see what she could do. They accepted the challenge and made that rush to the lizard a drunken dream of power to me. As I sat steering and watching the big waves rush up astern, flinging the boat up on their tops and leaving her to slip wantonly down their backs, as she rolled and sheared and lurched along at her top speed and never a drop of water came aboard, I dreamed that I should like to go on in this style forever. Now and again, I stepped down into the cabin for a morsel to eat or to boil the kettle. At first, I tried to be quick enough to get in and back again before the yacht could broach too, but she was too quick for me. She was slung round on the top of a big wave and hove herself too. She knew how to do this herself. She liked doing it, and she was evidently designed, built and rigged with the one aim of making her a boat that would heave too quickly, safely, surely, and remain hove to till you wanted to sail her again. As soon as I discovered this praiseworthy feature, I had no further qualms about going into the cabin. I used to leave the tiller for any odd excuse and at any phase of the following waves and let the boat do as she pleased. She never once mugged the manoeuvre. On reaching the lizard, I seriously thought of going straight away up channel. 
but Wiser Reflections won. I knew I was tired, that the weather was really bad and that a good harbour was within easy reach during the daylight, so I went into St Moors and anchored there about 8pm on Friday night. Next day I inquired diligently what day it was, because although I have given a fairly clear account of this passage, I was really not sure whether I had reached St Moors on Friday or Saturday, and as my watch had stopped during the night I had spent off Land's End, I had to guess even the hour of the day. Chapter 9. Fair Winds Up Channel At St Moors I stayed a week, hiring a dinghy so that I could get ashore whenever I liked, but a hired dinghy is not like your own. This one had no efficient fender, and it annoyed me to know that I was paying a man to let his dinghy knock my boat about. On August the 25th, I felt fresh once more and anxious to be home. I left in the afternoon with a hard southwest wind, much harder than I had thought it, while I lay in the shelter of the harbour. The boat carried her full sail and did 25 miles in four hours, then she took another four hours to do the remaining 15 miles to Plymouth. I had some idea at first of going straight on to Southampton, but I saw the storm cone hoisted after I came out of St Moors. In addition, the barometer kept falling and the wind seemed to be backing, though I was never sure of this. Also, I had not wrapped myself in oilskins from head to foot before starting, and in getting into the open, I was soaked. One wave jumped over and doused me entirely so that I had to change everything and dress suitably. This start disheartened me, and although I set a course for the Eddystone, I had a notion all the time that Plymouth was to be my port. It is a much more sensible plan to take your sleep when the boat is at anchor in harbour than to perform unnecessary passages. When I got up on Monday morning, it was with the intention of going ashore for a scrub, but seeing the sun, sky and wind were all I could desire, I changed my mind and set out for Southampton. The wind was westerly and moderate. It began to blow hard when I was a mile or two outside the breakwater, but I kept on all sail until off Prawl Point. A squall made me drop the main and reef it. I took down the heavy jib, and I was glad there was only one jib. With the two remaining sails shortened right down, I went on. The wind became harder and gustier, settling at last into the same sort of blow as I had had off Land's End. I thought a storm cone was hoisted at Prawl Point, but could not be sure. There seemed to be two of them, but as neither could be made out plainly, I cancelled one against the other and made it no signal. Instead of turning round Start Point to Dartmouth or Torquay, what must I do but keep on? I had exactly what I deserved, a real twisting. The sea became a beast, and the waves had to be watched and steered for. In the run from Land's End to the Lizard, the waves were a little bigger and the wind a little harder, but although the wind force and the point of sailing were so much alike, it was now wet, unpleasant and tiring work to steer. Before, the boat had rolled and romped and hurried along while I just held the tiller and watched the fun. Now the sea was no longer smooth, regular and rhythmic. The only regularity shown by the waves was the constant uncertainty of the direction they would come from. They came from aft and from each quarter, lifting up and slopping into the well. When dark came, I was so scared at the thought of sailing the boat when I could no longer see and allow for these waves that I hove to for the night. I had now the opportunity of learning another valuable lesson in sailing, as I saw how splendidly the Joan rode over everything that came along. Unlike what happened when we were off the Isle of Man, little water came into the well when she was hove to. 
She was as safe as houses are supposed to be. I pumped out, fixed a white light to show all round, and slept as long and as often as I could. The motion was more than unpleasant. I had to lie down to endure it. I also had to force myself to eat, and the food went down very unkindly. I was wet through. My oil skins had worn out their oil long before. With a pot of stuff I had bought in Belfast, I painted the coat. This would have answered if I had been able to rub it in well and let it dry, but it had to hang about the boat and was used before it was set. On Tuesday morning, after being hove to for twelve hours, I gathered up my reserves of courage and sailed on, for the wind refused to diminish and consequently the seas only received the more encouragement. During the night, some of the reef points had torn out, the spars had chafed a great deal and two of the clip hooks on the foresail had come adrift. I had to sail hard all day with cold water to drink and dry bread, chocolate and onions to eat. Getting anything else was far too hard a task. No land was sighted until 5pm when I saw what I calculated was Anvil Point. Luckily, my arithmetic was sound and I thankfully dropped anchor in Swanage Bay at 10pm. The berth was a rolling one, but it was a luxury compared to that of Monday night. When I woke up on Wednesday, the wind was beginning to creep into the bay. A gale warning was hoisted at the lighthouse on Anvil Point. No more gale riding for me if I know it. Here goes for Pool Harbour, I thought, and by 10am I was safely anchored off sandbanks. As I came in, the skipper of a barge hailed me. Where are you from? In Plymouth. Gold, when do you start? Monday morning? Gold. At 2pm, the same day, the real gale arrived, and though I was in perfectly safe harbour, it allowed no comfortable night's sleep. The wind howled and shrieked, and I patted my back metaphorically, for if the sea was bad before, what it was like now, I failed to imagine. The dinghy trouble was so bad in Pool Harbour that I went away after visiting the shore once. I went into the Hamble River next. It was full as ever, not a spot for any fresh anchor. I had to tie up against an ML, and a merry juggling trick it was to do this without a dinghy. Moreover, the dinghy trouble was worse here than at Pool, so bad that I refused all offers, and by skill, patience and cheek I got ashore and back for nothing. But my skill is small, my patience is not great, and my cheek has a limit. I left the Hamble River with very unkind feelings. The wind was light and a little south of west, all went well till 2am on Tuesday morning, September 4th, when the wind freshened again and ended in a howl. It was bad enough to bring steamers to stare. A naval boat steamed round me off Eastbourne, but I glared at him with determination. A German pilot schooner off Dungeness was vastly interested and sailed by to get a good view. I was glad to anchor on the lee side of Dungeness, where I spent Tuesday night. The following day was spent in rushing to the South Foreland and dawdling gently to deal where, instead of going on, I considered I ought to give myself a treat by anchoring in the small downs for the night. On Thursday, the little wind of the morning died away altogether. The boat drifted most of the way from North Foreland to Hearn Bay. Off Margate, I entertained crowded boatloads of trippers who were astonished and delighted to see a man peeling potatoes for his dinner. The Joan then stayed at Whitstable for a week while I had a new jib made, and towards the end of September she picked up her moorings again at Aerith after being away for about five months on her first long cruise. I was, 
immensely proud of the boat and what she had done and I began to have some sort of respect for myself and a belief that I was really adapted to living on a small boat and sailing her hard. The life apparently suited me perfectly. I felt I wanted to imitate some of the masters of the game and sail around the world. The Joan, however, had certain disadvantages. She was slow. She was too small to carry all the material required for such a long cruise. She could not carry a dinghy with her. I cast about in my mind for how I could arrange such a cruise, what sort of boat would best do, and how I could find a crew to join me, an amateur crew necessarily. So next year, I put the Joan away and tried to sell her, but nobody would have her. I bought an old but sound Ramsgate trawler, the Annie. The whole of 1924 was spent on this little enterprise, and it failed miserably, which left me, once again, thinking of the Joan. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.